Hey, Dog Days listeners, it's Monday, August 9th, 2021, day nine of the Dog Days of Podcasting. Here's the thing about isotopes. Most of the time, we don't care about them. Let's say you're a synthetic chemist and you're making aspirin. Aspirin contains carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Its exact formula is C9H8O4. Each aspirin pill has many aspirin molecules and many carbons, hydrogens, and oxygens. Each carbon is its natural mixture of isotopes, mostly C12. Each hydrogen is its natural mixture, mostly H1. And each oxygen is its natural mixture, mostly O16. When you swallow it, you swallow a lot of C12, H1, and O16, but also a little bit of the stable isotopes C13, O17, and O18, and H2, deuterium. And also present in that aspirin are traces of the radioactive isotopes C14 and H3, or tritium. By the way, your body can handle this small amount of radioactivity, in part due to natural DNA repair mechanisms. Although one does wonder if this has anything to do with long-term aging, having to deal with radioactivity, that is. As far as, as far as metabolism goes, your body doesn't care too much about which isotope it's dealing with. H2 works about as well as H1, C13 about as well as C12. Same thing if you're making materials like concrete or plastics or manufacturing iPhones from various metals, you rarely need to worry about the isotopic mixture of the elements you're working with. But notice, I didn't say there were no differences whatsoever. And there are situations you need to pay attention to isotopes or where you can apply the differences between isotopes. In fact, one particular difference between isotopes is that that is often important is their mass. H2 or deuterium is heavier than H1. C13 is heavier than C12, and so on. Two things that have slightly different masses usually will have slightly different properties, often ignorable, but not always. Consider water in a lake that is evaporating. Water, of course, is H2O. Almost all of the H in that water is H1, but a little bit is H2, or deuterium. Water containing H1, hydrogen 1, weighs a little bit less than the water containing the deuterium. Furthermore, it's known that lighter liquids generally evaporate more easily than heavier liquids. So the water with hydrogen 1 evaporates a little bit more easily than the water containing deuterium. Over time, you end up with more hydrogen-1 in the air and more deuterium in the lake than would be normal. The lake water is enriched in deuterium. This doesn't mean that there is now more deuterium than hydrogen-1 in the lake, just more deuterium than expected. Water, of course, also contains oxygen, and likewise, you'd find the water in the air above a lake to be enriched a little bit of in oxygen 16, the lighter element, and the water in the lake enriched a little bit in the heavier O17. On the flip side, water with heavier uh, deuterium or O17 will rain out from a cloud more easily than water with the lighter hydrogen 1 or O16. 
heavier isotopes will rain out more easily than lighter isotopes. So cloud water will be a little bit enriched in hydrogen 1 and oxygen 16, and the rain that falls from it a little bit enriched in deuterium and oxygen 17. All of this probably seems trivial, maybe, but this phenomenon is called isotope fractionization. This concept can be used to measure all sorts of things. Consider that evaporation and rainfall are tightly linked to temperature. This is one reason you can look at, say, ice cores in the Arctic and look at the isotope ratios in them to get one measurement of past temperatures. The farther, obviously, the farther down they go in an ice core, the farther back in time you go. And they can look at these hydrogen 2 or deuterium to hydrogen 1 ratios or O17 to O16 ratios and get an indication of how the temperature has changed over time. These exact calculations are beyond me, but obviously this is all important uh, in climate change uh, temperature determinations. You can also look at the oxygen ratios in ancient calcium carbonate to get climate information as well. Calcium carbonate has a formula CaCO3, so it has oxygen in it. Uh, it makes up shells of marine organisms and is found in rocks and such. Here's a different way isotope fraction fractionization happens. A different mechanism, but kind of the same result. As far as carbon goes, of course, plants consume CO2 to be used in photosynthesis. The CO2 in the air is mostly C12, with about 1.1% C13. But some plants have a metabolism that enriches themselves in C13. So that, the, so that the plant has more than 1.1% C13 in it. It turns out that maize or corn tends to enrich itself in C13 a bit more than do rice, wheat, and potatoes. Maize or corn has particular enzymes to pull the carbon out of the air. Rice, wheat, and potatoes have their own enzymes to pull carbon out of the air, and they all do it a little bit differently. So corn will have a little bit more carbon-13 in it than do rice, wheat, and potatoes. Analysis of the bones of Native Americans from archaeological sites show a shift in their C13 content just about 1,000 years ago from less to more carbon-13. This is evidence that carbon-13 enriched... Uh, carbon... This... <laughs> Sorry, this is evidence that maize cultivation in North America, North America began about a thousand years ago. So for about a thousand years ago, we see this uptick in carbon-13. That means they switched from rice, wheat, or potatoes to corn at about that time, 1,000 years ago. Pretty amazing, huh? Tomorrow, we'll talk about how all this applies to a certain English king. That is if I get... Uh, to it tomorrow. I have a really busy day tomorrow and I haven't totally prepared it. So we'll see. Bye-bye.